Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay. And unfortunately, we are coming to you under less than ideal circumstances. Since the last time we recorded, the Suns have gone 0-2 in their playoff series against the Los Angeles Lakers. And they're coming off their most disheartening performance yet in Game 3. We're going to talk a little bit about Game 3, what went wrong there. And then we're going to take a look at some adjustments that the Suns can make Uh, Some of them tactical, some of them just performance-wise as far as things that they just have to do better moving forward if they want to prevent this series from slipping away. Um, Obviously, they lost home court advantage in Game 2. Chris Paul has not been effective with basically one arm. And the Suns are really staring at the end of their season here. They're only down 2-1, and a win in Game 4 obviously changes everything, but they've already lost home court advantage. They are going into game four with a less than whole roster. And, uh, you know, it was a really disheartening performance. So we're going to get into all of that. And then we're also going to do our first G-rated segment in a while. I know it's been a couple weeks since we've been able to do one of those. I've been promising that we would talk about Shadow and Bone. And so we're finally going to do that, uh, the Netflix series, just to uh, keep things a little bit lighter because it's not good on the Suns front. So we'll start with game three. and. Honestly, I try to stay as optimistic um, about things as possible. And Monty kind of put this in perspective as well. He was asked about Chris Paul's injuries uh, during the postseason, how they keep happening and, and how cruel it is that they keep happening. And his response was basically, you know, I'm kind of the wrong guy to talk to about cruel. Like, I know what cruel actually is. This is just basketball. Like, yes, obviously it sucks for Chris Paul's legacy that he keeps getting hurt, but there's a lot more to life than basketball. Um, so, you know, I, I try to stay optimistic, but on the Suns front, there isn't a lot of positivity to go around right now outside of DeAndre Ayton and campaign. Those are really the only two bright spots for the Suns right now because game three, they just got punked. Like they did. The Lakers outplayed them. They wore them down with their defense and the Suns' response was less than stellar. It was both on the court and in terms of their mental approach that we saw late in the game, and we'll talk about all of that in a little bit. But, um, you know, they were down by 13 heading into the third quarter. They got outscored 16-12 to in the second quarter. They scored 12 points in the second quarter, Um, and it was just a slugfest. Obviously, both teams have really good defenses, but the Lakers just – grinded it out they wore the Suns down um, and they came out with way more energy in the third quarter they outscored them 33 to 23 and a lot of those looks were easy dunks and you know there was that one dunk that Anthony Davis almost had that would have brought Staples Center down if he would have finished it Um, so the Suns caught a break in that regard but just way too many easy points at the basket they had no energy Um, and, and it starts at the top obviously you know Chris Paul can't be his effective self right now but Devin Booker the Suns needed him to step up and he was not he was not the answer Um, he had 19 points he shot six for 19 from the field one for four from three he had four turnovers 
he fouled out and he got that ejection late in the game. Um, basically right as he was fouling out, he got ejected on a flagrant two for a frustration foul on Dennis Schroeder. That was uh, pretty telling. Honestly, we've, we've seen Devin Booker commit some of those frustration fouls before when he feels like he's not getting calls or the game isn't going his way, but that's mostly been in the past when he's been playing on losing teams and has had every right to be frustrated. You know, this is his first playoff series. He's on a legitimately good team right now. He has to be mentally tougher than that. He has to be more poised than that, especially since that's something that the Suns and Monty Williams constantly preach and talk about. Um, And that shove on Schroeder was just not it. Um, you know, obviously it's kind of interesting that Lakers fans have viewed this series in the same lens that Suns fans kind of have that, you know, the other team is dirty and that the other team is getting the benefits of the calls, which I find very interesting because I'm not sure what series they're watching. It's, it's very heavily skewed towards the Lakers in terms of the free throw discrepancy right now. But, um, and I'm not going to go as far as calling it a dirty play like Anthony Davis did, which is kind of ironic since literally in game one, he kicked another dude in the nuts on a jump shot. Like he did his best Draymond green impression and he's calling other plays dirty. But uh, in this case, Devin Booker's shove there kind of validated what Lakers fans have been saying about, Oh, this team's dirty because that wasn't a basketball play. I don't think it was dirty. And honestly, it did look like Schroeder kind of hit him in the groin uh, you know, popped him in the Armani's there on that play with his offhand. So it was probably retaliation or frustration that that had gone unnoticed. Um, but you've just got to be more composed than that in that moment. And especially as a team's leader, like, yes, you're probably going to lose that game anyway. It had no bearing on the outcome of the game because it was already out of hand. But um, it was a little bit revealing about how flustered the Lakers had Devin Booker all night in game three. And he's got to be better. He's got to be mentally tougher in game four because they're going to need him. And and we'll talk about some of the things that he can do uh, heading into game four a little bit later. But, you know, it wasn't just Booker, obviously. You know, Jay Crowder was a disaster again. He shot two for eight overall and one for six from three. Um, Cam Johnson disappeared when they needed some semblance of floor spacing to take some pressure off of Booker. He was one for six overall and one for four from three. And that was after he had two pretty strong games. I think he shot 40% from three in, in both of the first two games, but he just disappeared when they needed him in, in game four, or I'm sorry, in game three. And Mikael Bridges, I know he's got a tough task as far as having to defend LeBron, and that takes a lot out of you, but they need more offense out of him and they need to, they need him to be able to keep LeBron honest on the other end of the floor. Um, he started the game off two for four from three point range. And it looked like it was going to be a Mikhail Bridges night. And then he took one shot the rest of the night. He took four shots in the first eight minutes and then one shot the rest of the night. He finished two for five. That's just not going to cut it for the Suns team. They need his scoring you know, over the last stretch of games heading into the postseason, he was averaging like 15 points per game. He was doing it from the mid range. He was hitting threes. He was attacking off the dribble. And there's been none of that in this series so far. Um, it's really only been Aiton and Payne, like we said earlier, who have showed up consistently and they did it again in game three. But the Suns' lack of experience is starting to shine through. They didn't look scared of the moment in game one. Um, but in game two with Chris Paul less than 100% and in game three with Chris Paul still less than 100%, uh, 
those younger guys haven't really stepped up outside of Aiton and, and part of Aiton performing that well is obviously the Sun or the Lakers are trying to take away that three-point shot and are are saying, you know what, if Aiton is going to beat us with a bunch of buckets around the basket, then so be it. But we're not going to give up threes. We're not going to let these other guys get going. So that is alarming. And we can't talk anymore about the Suns' struggles without pointing out the obvious. Their best or second best player, depending on how you view it, is like 50% right now, literally half an arm, like 50% not all there right now. He had 7.6 assists and five rebounds in game three, and he was a game worst minus 20. You know, he shot three for eight. He missed another free throw. Um, and it's very clear that he's hurting the Suns when he's out there because he can't really do the things that he would normally do. Um, you know, if, if you look at his series as a whole, he's taken one three-point attempt in three games. He's shooting 38% from the floor. He's missed three of his six free throws after leading the league in free throw percentage at like 93%. And the Suns have been outscored by 16 points in his 86 minutes on the court. So, you know, a guy that hasn't topped seven points in a single game yet is obviously not 100%, and that's killing the Suns, not just because they don't have Chris Paul, but because they have a version of Chris Paul out there who is not effective, and it's hurting their spacing. It's hurting the team right now to have him out there. Um, obviously, he's still going to, you know, put up some assists. He's still going to defend well but he can't do what he has to do. He can't put any zip on his passes and the Lakers don't respect his three point shot at all, because why would they? He's only taken one three. It doesn't seem like he can even get that shot up right now with the way that free throws, you know, he's wincing in pain for every free throw right now. So that is not good. And the problem is based on what he said after game three, Chris Paul doesn't sound like a guy that's ready to admit that he's hurt. And he, he sounds more like a guy that wants to keep pushing through it. I don't know. Just got to figure it out. Playoffs. Everybody a little banged up. I got to figure it out. So that's kind of alarming if you're a Suns fan, because unless things drastically change with his shoulder in the next 24 hours or so, he's putting the Suns in an awkward position where obviously if he thinks he's good enough to go, you're going to give that guy the benefit of the doubt. He's a playoff warrior. He's been instrumental to the Suns' success. Like they wouldn't be a title contender without him. I think they'd still be a playoff team with just a regular point guard. Like if they, if they still had Ricky Rubio at the point, I think they'd still be a playoff team, but they wouldn't be legitimate title contenders without him on the court. And they don't really have, you know, this, this series is an uphill climb if they don't have him. But at the same time, if this is the version of him that they're going to keep getting where he plays through pain and his effectiveness totally drops off in the second half and they wind up going with campaign anyway, like they need to be able to prepare a game plan outside of that. Like they need a plan B for when, if, and when Chris Paul, decides he can't go like they need to commit to one they need to be able to prep in advance they need to be able to get campaign used to the idea that hey you're starting in game four like we need you to start Javon Carter we're going to need you to come off the bench or each one more whichever route they decide to take there um, whether they opt for you know defense to hound Dennis Schroeder up the court which I think would be prudent because Schroeder has been picking them apart the last two games or 
you know, Etuan Moore, who's more of a playmaker and driver, which might help with some of the spacing and, and keeping the Lakers defense honest. But either way that they go there, they need to get a game plan formulated in advance for game four. And honestly, like campaign has been more effective than Chris Paul. And heading into this series, if you had told me that Dennis Schroeder would outplay Chris Paul, I would have said Lakers in four. Like, there's no way that that can ever happen. So if that's the version of Chris Paul that we're getting, the Suns really need to consider benching him or having an honest conversation or, you know, just really praying to every basketball god that ever was that Chris Paul's shoulder will actually be right for game four. Because in game three, he looked okay in the first half. His first shot was good. He was still getting to the mid-range okay. And then that shot put form came back and he didn't play for the last nine minutes. Now he said it was because he was need in the nuts, but you know, he can't play through that kind of pain, obviously. And his effectiveness in the second half has dropped off each time. So heading into game four, the Suns need to start campaign. If this is the Chris Paul that we're getting, they need to start him. And that is the first adjustment that we have for game four. Um, and it's not like this would be some drastic lineup switch or anything like that. Obviously, Chris Paul only missed two games, so it would in terms of, you know, switching up the starting lineup. But the Booker Payne lineups have actually played pretty well this season. You know, they played 659 minutes together and they have a 7.1 net rating. So they've fared pretty well. And campaign is the type of guard that can play on the ball or off the ball. Um, he's, he's very similar to CP three in that you can stagger him at the one or the two, you can stagger his minutes with book so that one of them is always on the floor. Um, and it's not like it'd be some new lineup that's being thrown out there, you know, 659 minutes together is a pretty good sample size. Um, and Payne has been good in this series. He's been one of the few bright spots, as we've mentioned, especially since he got ejected in game one. Um, he's shooting seven for 15 from three point range. Uh, he's actually the Suns' third leading scorer, which is kind of alarming. He's averaging 13 points per game. And he's a threat off the dribble and as a shooter, which Paul is not either one of those right now. Um, you know, Payne is obviously not the same caliber of playmaker as Chris Paul is, but, you know, he's still averaging 4.7 assists per game in this series so far. And even something like that will provide oxygen for a Suns offense that's basically being suffocated at the head with Devin Booker. Um, and on a related note to Devin Booker being suffocated at the point of attack, the Suns have to make shots. Like this is, I say adjustment, it's not some tactical change that needs to happen. The Suns just have to shoot better. Like they, it's really as simple as that. They're not gonna win the series if they don't make more shots. Like heading into the series, the Lakers were like 21st and three point percentage and the Suns were seventh, I think they were top 10. And they needed that three-point discrepancy to be a thing. They couldn't afford to go cold. And that's exactly what's happened in this series. Um, you know, their three-point attempts are down nearly seven per game compared to the regular season. They shot 34 point, what was it? 34.6 per game during the regular season. And it's down to 27.7 per game in the playoffs. Um, and the three-point percentage is way down. They shot 37.8% from three in the regular season and are at 33.7% through these first three games. The Lakers are doing a great job of closing out on their shooters and running them off the three-point line. Uh, and Crowder's cold streak 
obviously is not making them pay right now, but like the Suns just have to let it fly and make some shots. And Monty said after game three that, you know, they are missing shots, but they've got to stay aggressive. And he believes that they're due. I mean, it's a bunch of our guys who aren't shooting well. I mean, Cam Johnson was one for six. We're not getting Mikhail enough shots. Um, you know, it's it's important to space the floor for for Book, Chris, and DA to have those guys making shots. So we're due. That's that's the part I'm looking forward to. Is we're, we're due to have a a breakout game shooting the ball. So Monty's absolutely right. They need to keep letting it fly and they need to hope that the Suns' other guys can provide Booker with some semblance of spacing because right now between the cold shooting and Paul being a complete non-threat with one arm, the Lakers have been able to just build a wall in front of Devin Booker. Um, There was a screenshot circulating around Twitter. I think it was Mike Vigil or someone else that posted it. Um, But it looked like the Lakers were playing a 3-2 zone with the way that they were lined up. They had Booker way out in front on the perimeter and then there was a guy in the middle and two guys on the wings they weren't playing a zone those two guys on the wings were literally just sagging that far off of chris paul in the corner and jay crowder on the wing because neither one of them has been a respectable threat the lakers are living with them taking those shots or in chris paul's case not even attempting those shots and they're building a wall in front of booker and and that makes it really hard for him to get going because the Lakers defense is already good enough as it is. If you're able to send double or triple teams at him or keep him from driving because there are guys in his way at every angle, you know, there's no way the Suns are going to win this series. There's no way that Devin Booker is going to be effective because this defense is already good enough one-on-one as it is. Um, You know, so the Suns shot 11 for 29 in game three, which sounds good on paper. That's almost 38%, but most of that came late in the game when, when the score was already out of reach. You know, the Suns were six for 22 for the first three quarters from three-point range, and then they went five for seven in the fourth quarter to kind of boost that average up. But, you know, again, the game was already out of reach. It was a valiant effort, I guess, but they didn't play the first 38 minutes of the game with that same sense of urgency, with that same confidence to shoot. So hopefully that carries over into game four, Um, But again, that's going to be difficult with Chris Paul either limited or not going to be able to play. So pure and simple, Suns have got to take and make more shots to provide Devin Booker relief. Um, And that's another big one is trusting in Devin Booker. You know, if those, if the other guys, if the wings like Cam Johnson, Jay Crowder, Mikhail Bridges, if they can give him some spacing by shooting threes, and if campaign is in the starting lineup to keep the Lakers defense more honest, it's on Booker to respond to his awful game three. Like he looked ready for the moment in game one, but since then book honestly wasn't terrific in game two. Uh, you know, he, he scored 31, but 10 of those points came in the final minute from the free throw line when the outcome was pretty much already decided. He only shot seven for 17 in that game. And then in game three, obviously he didn't shoot the ball. Well, he got ejected. He was not the leader that the Suns needed him to be, especially with Chris Paul, playing at a limited capacity. They need him to respond in game four. Like his teammates aren't doing him favors by not hitting shots to keep the Lakers defense more honest, but he has to be better and he has to rise to the occasion um, because with Chris Paul limited, the Suns season could be over if they lose game four. 
like falling down 3-1 to this Lakers team. They already smell the blood in the water. They already took home court advantage. Um, this is a do or die moment for the Suns team. They can either head back to Phoenix, stealing home court adva- advantage back in a tight series, or they can go down 3-1 to a much more experienced team that knows how to close other teams out and play in an elimination game for the first time at home in front of a very nervous crowd. I don't see the Suns winning that game. I, I see if they win game four, it's a series again. If they lose game four, I really do think they could be going home in five games. And it absolutely sucks that this is the way that their season could end, especially with Chris Paul going down like this. Yet another classic Suns what if and what if for Chris Paul's playoff career. But they have to find a way to win game four. And that starts with Devin Booker being the leader and the franchise star that Suns fans know that he is. He just has to be better than he's been in the last two games. Um, he's been preparing for these, these playoffs his whole life. You know, he's, he's, he was ready for the moment in game one. He has not responded well to the things that the Lakers defense has done in the next two games. And again, part of that, the Suns have to do him some favors by hitting some shots to help open things up. But, um, you know, he, he needs to prove that this is the moment he's been waiting his entire life for in game four. He's put the work in. Now he has to perform and be the guy for the Suns. Um, but a couple of other, you know, pretty obvious things that are, they could be a matter of tactical changes because in game two, Anthony Davis got to the line a ton. A lot of those were kind of phantom fouls on shots that the Suns would live with. Um, but in game three, he got to the basket a lot more, you know, the, the, and the Suns need to protect the paint. That's another major adjustment for game four. They got outscored 58 to 38 on points in the paint. And Anthony Davis's shot chart looked like a damn honeycomb right around the basket, you know, just little circles everywhere right around the basket. Um, The Lakers have scored 144 points in the paint through the first three games, which is the most in the NBA among all 16 playoff teams. And that puts them at about 48 points in the point points in the paint per game. The Suns are at 43.3 points in the paint per game. So before game three, they weren't doing too bad on this front, but the Lakers got Anthony Davis a couple of little little cross screens, little cuts to the basket and found him on, on those rolls every time. The Suns' rotation defense wasn't great in that regard. Um, you know, Crowder and Ayton have to be better in that respect because Ayton was getting very easy looks at the rim. Uh, kind of like what Aiton has enjoyed so far on the other end. Um, they have to find a way to stop fouling. And I know this one is difficult. Suns fans are going to be very pissed that I'm even mentioning this, but they can't continue to get outshot from the free throw line this badly. And part of that, yes, the Lakers have drawn a very favorable whistle, especially in the first two games. Um, but part of that is the Suns just have to find a way to enforce their will without sending the Lakers to the foul line. Um, you know, in, in game three, the Suns were outshot 30 to 18 from the free throw line. And uh, they were only outshot 31 to 30 in game two. But the disparity there was larger than it seems because, you know, Anthony Davis obviously shot 21 free throws in that game. No one will ever forget that. But Booker got 10 of his 17 free throw attempts in garbage time in, in the last minute, basically. So that discrepancy was actually a lot larger in the minutes that mattered. And then the refs just kind of evened it out a little bit over that last minute. Um, And then in game one, they were outshot 28 to 12. So 
through the first three games in total, the Suns have been outshot 89 to 60 from the free throw line. So they're down 29 free throw attempts through the first three games. Um, and 33 of 80 of 81 points for Anthony Davis, nearly 41% of his points have come from the free throw line. So yes, yeah, some of those were weaker fouls or even phantom fouls in game one. We saw quite a few of those, but the Suns have to find a way to keep him and the rest of the Lakers off the free throw line and especially turn Anthony Davis into a jump shooter again, because they're not going to win this series if that continues. Anthony Davis can't continue to go off for 34 points per game, especially with LeBron James starting to wake up and enforce his will as a playmaker and as a shooter. Um, they've just got to find a way to keep the Lakers off the foul line better than they have to this point. Um, they also need to clean up the offensive boards. You know, they, they got out-rebounded 51-35 to 35 in game three, and they gave up 15 offensive rebounds. And, you know, that's a stark contrast the last two games compared to game one. They out-rebounded L.A. 47-33 to in game one. They got 16 offensive boards to the Lakers 10. But since then, they've been out-rebounded 90-66 to and 23-12 to on the offensive glass. So they're giving up a lot of offensive boards. They're getting pummeled in that regard. They need to find a way to even things out. And Aiton's doing all he can but they've got to keep Drummond off the glass. They've got to keep AD off the glass. They have to do, you know, what Monty Williams has talked about. He calls it gang rebounds. The whole team has to be involved. The guards, the wings, they have to be crashing the boards and keeping the Lakers off their backs um, because they're getting pummeled in that respect right now. And, and they need to close out a lot of these possessions with defensive stops, maybe try and get something in transition, God forbid, and not let the Lakers defense set up. But right now, that's not happening. Um, and I don't really know what the Suns do with the non-DeAndre Ayton minutes at center because it's been bad no matter which way they've turned. But they've got to come up with something because, you know, Sharich is a big body who helps on the boards and, and with, you know, preventing some of those points in the paint. But he was a train wreck in game two. And offensively, his confidence is, is shot. And then Kaminsky, his minutes weren't, terrible but they weren't good either in game three he was a plus zero so he was neutral but um Drummond kind of feasted on the glass and in the paint with him out there manning the five spot there, no one in the league is going to fear Frank Kaminsky as a rim protector um he's just not strong enough for some of those interior post battles there or from keeping guards from driving the lane and then Craig is a small ball five that's just asking to get worked on the glass and, and on the interior, um, especially if the Suns aren't able to capitalize on the advantage of going small, which is having shooters everywhere and spreading the floor um, because they're not making their threes right now. So that's an iffy solution as well. No, I'm sorry, free sticks people like Jalen Smith is not ready for this moment at all. Like he would get torn to shreds if they threw him out there. Um I just I keep going back to how Dwayne Dedman was available all season long and the Suns didn't address that third backup big spot. And they could have had a guy like Dedman who has played really well for the Miami Heat in the playoffs. Obviously the Heat are getting pummeled, but he's been very good. He would be very good in the series. He's not gonna stop Anthony Davis, he's not gonna stop Andre Drummond, but he's a much better option to throw out there considering the Suns need size. They need rim protection. They need a strong body on the interior right now. And they have none of those things. So 
I don't know what the Suns do in that regard. It's honestly a pick-your-poison type of situation right now. Um, but they have to be better at protecting the paint. They have to be better at keeping the Lakers off the offensive glass. Um, and they have to find a way to survive those non-DeAndre Ayton minutes because right now it feels like he's their most indispensable player that they can't take off the floor, which is kind of funny because heading into the series, he was the one, the Suns youngster that we were most worried about, and he's been the most consistent performer <laughs> through three games. So those are some things that the Suns need to keep an eye on in game four, but we're going to take a quick break and be right back after this. All right. So it's been a while since we've done one of these, but we wanted to keep it light since the sun stuff is kind of all doom and gloom right now. Uh, we're going to do our G rated segment today on shadow and bone, which is a new ish Netflix series. Uh, it actually came out a few weeks ago, but uh, things have been so busy outside of the podcast and obviously with the Suns in the playoffs that we haven't had a chance to talk about any new shows lately. So we're going to do that today. Shadow and Bone is based on a trilogy, the Grisha trilogy, which is basically set in this world with people called Grisha who are, they're not witches, but they can like, they're kind of like airbenders or earthbenders, elemental people. They can control elements like wind or fire. And uh, there's this place in the middle of this world called the fold. That's basically this shadow realm where there's a lot of nasty creatures and it makes traveling to these different parts of the country perilous because um, these flying Volcra um, will basically eat you. And it's this realm of darkness and there's no way to fend them off basically. Um, so it's centered on, a young woman, our protagonist named Alina Starkov, who's played by Jesse May Lee. And she's a cartographer who's reunited with her childhood friend, Mal, who's a tracker in what's called the first army. And they go on this mission into the fold uh, on one of these cool, like sand skiffs, like these giant ships that run on the sand. Um, and Alina kind of discovers in the process, they're attacked by these Volcra. And in the process, Alina discovers her ability to uh, summon light. So she's what's called the light summoner, this kind of prophesied thing, the person that uh, can control the light and fend off these Volcra. And potentially, if she increases her powers enough, find a way to defeat the fold or destroy it. Um, so that the world can go back to normal and, and, you know, travel as normal and it's not so divided by the fold. Um, so she's a, she becomes a very big deal in this world and she's brought to this guy named Gen General Kerrigan, who is played by Ben Barnes, um, pretty much one of the only recognizable faces as far as I know in the series, but um, he takes her to this place called the Little Palace and he's basically supposed to be her, her mentor who's going to train her to become the sun summoner um, so that she can banish the darkness and, and destroy the fold. And uh, of course, if you've seen any show or movie with Ben Barnes, this might be a minor spoiler alert, but if you've, if you've seen Ben Barnes in anything, you know that he's always the charming guy at first who winds up being the bad guy. And this is true here as well. Um, you know, Alina is wooed by, by general Kerrigan which is kind of weird because Ben Barnes is like 39 and I think Jesse May Lee is like 25. So it's a little awkward when that happens, but it's whatever. Um, so he takes her to the little palace. He woos her, you know, they're going to become this unstoppable duo, this mentor mentee duo that's going to destroy 
the, the fold. Um, but she finds out actually from one of the people that's helping her train there and is actually Ben Barnes's mom that spoiler alert, he's the bad guy. Like he is the one who actually created the fold. Um, he's the darkling, he's the shadow summoner, whatever you want to call him. He's the bad guy. So she basically has to flee this, uh, party that they're putting on to basically show off to all the nobles in the country that, Hey, I can manipulate the light. This is great for us. We're going to destroy the fold. Um, so she has to flee and Ben Barnes's plan is obviously to use her to manipulate the fold and actually expand it. Um, and there are other characters like um, the main ones are Kaz, Inej, and Jasper, who are referred to as the crows. They're basically just thieves that are plotting this heist. Um, but aside from Jasper's kind of hit or miss attempts at comedic relief, like, and you know, Inej does some cool things with her knives, but there wasn't really much to their stories that was interesting to me. Um, and the, a lot of the other B stories are kind of the same way. Like there's a very cringeworthy budding romance between um, a guy named Matthias, who is a Grisha hunter and Nina, who is a Grisha. And it's very much like, oh, they're supposed to hate each other, but they wind up falling in love despite the fact that they, it's like a Jon Snow and um, Egret ripoff kind of, except way less interesting. Um but anyway, so Alina escapes the little palace with the crows. Um, and, you know, she learns Kirigan's secret that he's actually bad. And she and her childhood friend Mal reunite and they go in search of this mythical stag that they know that General Kirigan was looking for. Um, and supposedly this creature is, if you take their bones, you can imbue yourself with their powers and enhance your powers you know, as this light summoner. So they go looking for the stag because they know that Kirigan's looking for it and they don't want him to be able to enhance his powers because he's already dangerous as hell with his ability to just straight up murder people with darkness. So um, they find the stag, but Kirigan shows up and he kills the stag. Alina didn't want to kill it, which is, you know, goes to show that she is the more noble of the two. She's good at heart. Kirigan kills the stag he um, imbues himself with the stag's power in his hand and he puts some of the antlers in Alina's like neck bone area, which is very uncomfortable for a couple of scenes because like it's like antlers jutting out of her neck bone area and it's very gross and you're, the whole time you're watching. You're like, can you just like drag those down a couple more inches? It's pretty gross. I don't want to be seeing those antlers sticking out of somebody's like chest cavity there. Um, but anyway, so basically by imbuing himself and her with the bones of these of this stag, um, he can control her powers. He can summon the light and he can control her control of the light, basically. So he puts her on one of these ships and it's a ship full of all these nobles and he's going to take her to West Ravka to show off the powers and they make this voyage and she creates, you know, this this giant light tunnel to protect them from the Volcra. Meanwhile, the crows and Mal have stowed away um, in the lower deck of the ship and are, are plotting their mutiny basically um, to save the day. 
and they get to West Ravka and Kirigan kind of reveals his true hand. He uses Alina's powers to start to expand the fold and take over this other place called West Ravka. Um, and so then the, the, the crows from below intervene and Alina is able to use one of Inej's daggers in the fight to cut the piece of stag out of Kirigan's hand so she can control her powers again um, and stop the unfolding fold, I guess, if you want to call it. Um, and it seems like, you know, Kirigan is killed by a Volcra, but spoiler alert, he is not, as the post credit scene shows or the very end shows there. Um, but yeah, and the, and the series basically just ends with her and Mal being on the road again, um, and the whole world knows about her existence now, so she's basically got to find a way to lie low, but also uh, continue to train and enhance her abilities as the Sun Summoner. So there's a lot of interesting concepts, and it's I love shows that are, especially these types of fantasy shows that are able to commit to world building and do a good job of it. And this is one of them, but it doesn't really feel like it ever reaches its full potential in terms of you know, just bringing something new to the table. Like it doesn't do much. Like the combat scenes are okay. Um, the things that these characters can do with their powers are not anything that we haven't seen in like Avatar or Harry Potter or like any of these other shows about this, these cosmic battles between good and evil. So I am kind of waiting for, to see if like in season two and beyond, if they expand on some of those powers, if they expand on some of the symbolism as far as good versus evil, obviously the stag is a symbol. Well, actually, I don't know, obviously, but if you're familiar with Harry Potter, there are a lot of symbols of resurrection in that, uh, in those books and in the movies. And uh, the stag is one of them. The stag is a symbol of resurrection. So it is interesting that, you know, Ben Barnes will wants to kill the stag symbolic of sort of like a Jesus type thing um, and, and man being evil and Alina wanted to preserve it and save it. Um, both are able to harness the power, but ultimately the stag is cut from Ben Barnes's hand and Alina is able to do good with it. And it's able to uh, be imbued with her more naturally in that way. So, you know, I, I, I see some of the symbolism, but it's just not, a perfectly executed series. I love Ben Barnes. I think the acting here is pretty good for the most part. Again, the crows don't really do anything for me. So they're, those B stories need to be a lot more interesting. Like Kaz, his character, I just don't really care about. I don't know if he's supposed to be a smart aleck or if he's just supposed to be straight faced all the time. He doesn't really bring much to the table one way or another. Um, and it's not really the actor's fault, I don't think but it's just, they don't really give those characters enough to do. And their stories just aren't that interesting to me outside of maybe Jasper, because he tries to be funny. Sometimes it's kind of hit or miss, like I said, but um, the best stuff of this series is, is Alina and Kirigan, their scenes. And then also, you know, Kirigan's past, what made him turn to the darkness. Why did he create the fold in the first place? Um, trying to make him a more complex character would be a good way to go about what they do with him moving forward. And then obviously the centerpiece of the story is the Alina Mal, you know, will they, won't they love story, especially the love triangle with Ben Barnes's character in the middle of that. Um, 
so those are those are kind of you know they have a very sweet friendship and and connection there so it'll be interesting to see if they can flesh that out a little bit more in season two um but for my final g rating i'm gonna give this a seven out of ten i think it's entertaining i think it's good i obviously binged it very quickly a few weeks back and uh i know that a lot of people like it so it's good but it's not great yet and i think there's a lot of potential that they could build on moving forward so we'll see if they're able to do so whenever season two comes out um but that's going to do it for this episode of the valley of the suns podcast thank you everyone for listening please make sure to subscribe write me a five-star review if you're uh enjoying the show and until next time this is gerald borgay signing off